Hi, I'm Madhuri Krishnan, editor of Skift Airline Weekly, and welcome to the podcast. We're doing something a little bit different with the podcast now. We're bringing you audio of our weekly live stream, Mondays with Skift Airline Weekly, which we broadcast every week, every Monday, at 11.30 a.m. Eastern. Join us next week. We'll take your questions while we discuss the hottest topics in the airline industry. You can register at forum.skift.com. Hi, and welcome to Mondays with Skift Airline Weekly. I'm your host, editor Madhu Anikrishnan. I'm joined today by a very special guest, a man who needs no introduction, really, but I'll do it anyway. It's John Ostrauer, the founder and editor-in-chief of The Aircar. Morning, John. Good morning. How are you? Thank you for having me. This is very exciting to, to jump in and, and talk to you guys. Obviously, we're kind of two halves of the same brain, aviation brain, you guys on the airline side and I'm on the the the, uh, the aerospace side. So it's, it's good to kind of combine forces here and have this discussion. Exactly. You know, I'm really excited to have you on because, uh, first of all, I, every time I read the air current, I learn something new. It's like it's fantastic. Uh, but also, you know, uh, we we tend not to cover the airframers here at Airline Weekly. So I'm excited to get your perspective on things. Now, let's let's just dive right into it. Um, so, John, uh, there was kind of a landmark last week. Uh, Bombardier has officially, essentially exited the commercial airline business uh, and, and. with the completion of its sale of the CRJ program to Mitsubishi. Uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on that, uh, what that means for the uh, smaller jet uh, market. And, um, and just let's talk about Mitsubishi going forward. But let's, let's start with the Bombardier sale, what that means. Well, you know, certainly, okay, so Bombardier built its commercial airplane business through acquisitions. Right. You know, it, it got it got Shorts, it got de Havilland, uh, it got Canadair, and it, and, it, and it got Learjet, it got, you know, it built up all of these different pieces of, of, of their business as they grew. And so it, it made sort of a strategic sense that what we would see is an exit in the same way. Hmm. And they, they carve off pieces one at a time, you know, it was whether it was, you know, the A220 to Airbus, whether it was, uh, you know, pieces of their manufacturing operation to to Spirit or, you know, or or de Havilland becomes, um, or I should say the Q400 program becomes de Havilland again. Right. Uh, you know, you see, you see this kind of devolution of, of their commercial aircraft business. So for them, they're done. Hmm. You know, the, what's the last piece is, is, uh, is Belfast uh, to, to Spirit Aerosystems and they are out. So that's the end of end of uh, you know uh, you know several decades of building commercial aircraft. So they are now a business jet manufacturer exclusively. They're selling the train business to Alstom, right. and so they have they have a, 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 a you know a, a portfolio that they're they're going to ride on, on for for their aerospace business. But um, you know certainly I think in their exit um, has 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 rocked the entire landscape and has changed where the the, the tectonic plates have moved. The last three years have been unbelievable. I mean, you know, you can trace a lot of this um, to the C-Series and the, the birth of the C-Series and, and what that did in terms of the development cost and, and, and what they believe was going to be their return on their investment for this new, this new product, which became the A220 mm -hmm. through the partnership with Airbus. But when you, when you really step back and look at that, um, that action of creating the 220 spawned the NEO, it spawned the Max, which, by the way, twelve thousand orders between the two of those airplanes, unbelievable. Um, it spawned uh, the breakup of Embraer, oh, sorry, the, uh, the breakup of Bombardier, the, the proposed acquisition of Embraer. Um, so it, 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 the you know the, the Boeing lawsuit back in twenty seventeen drove drove Bombardier into the arms of Airbus. I mean the the 
these plates have been shifting so rapidly. I mean, the amount of change that's happened in this business is really, really astonishing, and it's created unbelievable opportunities for, for what was, you know, what looked like Mitsubishi for with the space jet, looked like Embraer uh, with Boeing, um, looked like uh, the Chinese uh, potentially now with Embraer, with Embraer again, or the Indians. I mean, so you see these these chess pieces moving and moving and moving, and and, and I don't even the, the dust has not settled at all. And we do not have a, an industry that has a clear shape at the moment, I would say. So, I mean, uh, what, can this all be traced back? I mean, did, did Bombardier bite off a bit more than it could chew with the C-Series? Is that what precipitated a lot of this? Well, I, um, the answer is, I mean, if you, you can bite off a certain amount, but you have to have a business that can digest it. And it's not just that, and it's not just the idea of do you, do you have the technical wherewithal to do it? Yes, Bombardier absolutely did. The A220 is a, is a is a is a solid design, and it and it and it and it delivers on what it what it promised. The key is, I think, a strategic one, which is which is did Bombardier have the patience to to follow this through? And we now know the answer is no. Um, they did not. Because you know the 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 size of the investment that was required uh, to make this possible ultimately forced the government of Canada to get involved as a, right. from a from a bailout perspective, right? Um, it 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 prevented them from uh, worrying about the value of the airplane in the market in terms of what they thought the pricing should be, and that ended up slowing down their the the adoption of it and the liquidity of it within uh, within within the airline space. So they didn't have the the enterprise, the 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 strategy to match fundamentally what the product was and, and what it takes to be in this business over the long term. And if you're trying to get a quick return on an investment for a commercial aircraft, that is a recipe for failure. And we've seen that time and time again in this business. Right. So so what's uh, let's let's move to Mitsubishi and what what it, how does the CRJ program fit in with its portfolio? I mean, it's uh, it seems like it's got its. It's had a, had its own share of issues with the uh, yeah. development of the MRJ or the space jet. Yeah, well, it's two different questions, right? It's it right. It, 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 right. It's 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 the it's what is the the MRJ um what what is the what what was the MRJ becoming the space jet and what did the CRJ mean for the MRJ and the CRJ for the for space jet when it was rebranded last summer at the Paris Air Show and reformed for the U.S. aircraft uh, U.S. airline market fundamentally was in support of that product. It was going to be um, a, seamless, a seamless seamless transition for CRJ operators who were retiring airplanes to then buy space jets, the M100, which would have been ready in 2024, um, a 76-seat airplane compatible with Air U.S. Airlines scope clauses. Mm -hmm. uh, but what ended up happening was the that project dragged on um, and the leadership changed at Mitsubishi. And so what started as a project in 2008 and was going on 12 years, really, you got to kind of break it up in two parts. You have the, you know, 2016, they kind of re reestablished the program, got it, got it back up and running again um, with uh, additional you know, uh, experts from around the world and new program leadership to reconstitute it. So, so the, pro, the MRG program was like, you know, proof of concept. And then sort of, okay, how do we commercialize it? So it really became two parts. So the, the CRJ acquisition was going to be the global support system for the space jet. Huh. And it was going to give them a chance to get up and running. So, you know, the estimates that, that, that we have um, at, at the air current, it was that it was going to generate about 200 to $300 million worth of, 
uh, of revenue uh, for Mitsubishi on the aftermarket side. So that's actually, um, you know, cash that's coming in the door for supporting the CRJ fleet. Um, I do wonder to what extent, given the changes in the space jet program, Mitsubishi, um, have the budget, uh, for, for the, for the program and actually used the remaining half, uh, that they were going to spend to actually buy the, buy the CRJ, uh, program. So within that, I, I do wonder to what extent, um, at a point when they decided to sort of shelve the space jet development, the launch of, of the M100 and slow down the M90, which is actually larger than the M100. It's, it's, it's really <laughs> confusing. Um, but as they did that, I think there was sort of a question as to whether or not they were, you know, whether or not the CRJ program acquisition still made sense. And I think that they might have been to some extent too far along in the process to begin to unravel those hmm. Um, from from one another, and there were some indications of that. Um, but I think that still having Mitsubishi in control of that aftermarket uh, revenue gives them a you know a, a way to water the commercial aircraft business that they that they aspire to over time and have that that expertise. It's just a, a kind of a slower, more low key process than than what um, the, the way it's been unfolding right. as it would have had they gone with the, the formal space jet aircraft. Now let's, I mean, the space jet, I mean, you, in your, when you, when we first start, when we start at the beginning of this broadcast, the top of it, you, you, you put it really well. I mean, the tecton, the tectonic plates are moving around faster than tectonic plates should move, right? And yeah. then, and then, and we don't really, especially in this low, smaller end of the jet market, things have just been realigning so quickly. Now the space jet has had so many different, uh, I mean, uh, when I covered aerospace back in, uh, you know, the early 2020, 2010s or even before that, I mean, it just seemed like the, the space jet was like that old joke they make about Argentina, you know, the country of the future and always will be. I mean, what, 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 what is going on with this MRJ? I mean, where, will we, where, where are we in its kind of fraught development program? Well, I, I think to some extent, um, you know, our headline was dead and um, it's dead from the perspective of as we know it today. Okay. And and as we knew it today, sitting here in in mid 2020, was that it was going to be an aer an aircraft for the U.S. airline market, and that required a lot of different pieces that they were putting in place. Mm -hmm. Number one, a a structure to support it. So the CRJ that happened, right? right. But it was going to also require um, probably a U.S. final assembly line. It was going to require uh, different supplier partnerships uh, than than the Japanese had traditionally had. Uh, more arms length. Uh, partnerships to speed up and really take advantage of this of um, you know this opportunity and the opportunity when we see the opportunity we mean the wholesale replacement of about 200 to 250 regional jets per year starting in the middle of the decade mm -hmm. the, the demand was 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 clear I mean so they what so what they saw was this was this incredible opportunity to to internationalize Mitsubishi mm -hmm. and 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 balance its portfolio between um, Asia and, and the U.S. And that was going to be a huge opportunity for growth in this market. Mm -hmm. But it also required a, a very slow-moving conglomerate to do things quickly. Hmm. And that gets really painful. Um, and that gets really strategically uncomfortable. Um, and I think to, to in, in large measure, um, the opportunity in the business case was very, very, very sound. And I think what, it, what we had seen was that the space jet program had actually become an island inside of Mitsubishi that was separ separated from its overall uh, strategy when they when new leadership came in uh, last spring, and I think that the the 
the strategy that was guiding Mitsubishi to pursue the U.S. airline market with the M100, 76-seat scope-compliant airplane that would have competed with the E-175 from Embraer, um, at least until scope changes, uh, for, you know, against that, you know, potentially joining that that duopoly. Mm-hmm. I mean, Embraer has a monopoly now. I mean, that's that's an mm-hmm. astonishing thing. It is. You know, we, there's there's enough demand for two players, and there always was. So, you know, what we're going to see, it potentially opens the door for for, some, for something else. But it, as far as, I think what we're going to see is, is a much lower steady state as far as the global economy and the impact of COVID on Mitsubishi. Because um, a huge portion of Mitsubishi aerospace side and aerostructures business is building wings for the 787 hmm. and fuselage uh, sections uh, for the 777X. So... Those are not airplanes that people need right now. Right. And, and Airbus will tell you the same for the 350 and the 330. So that changes this kind of the, their priorities and how, what comes in the door. And, and, but they also have the patience to say, okay, we're going to take this down. We're going to, we're not going to finish the M90 right away. We're not going to launch the M100 to, into what is an uncertain, what seemingly uncertain market. Um, you know, the airplanes are, are retiring, but the dynamics are, are pretty murky. And then you say, okay, well, you know, I think what's going to end up happening is we're going to see the M90 finish, but it's not going to be right away. And frankly, JAL and ANA are going to take delivery of the airplane at some point once it's certified by Japanese regulators eventually. But no one needs new airplanes right now. Right. The last thing anyone needs. So, you know, it, it takes pressure off of, Mitsubishi, uh, off of Mitsubishi to say, okay, let's slow down. It takes pressure off of ANA to say, okay, there's not a new airplane coming. Um, and it just goes into a steady state. The problem is in this business, momentum and consistency is what allows you to, to have a, have a, a steady business. And, and typically when you have these up and down swings, it's really painful. It, it, it is painful and it's disruptive and you don't get as much done as you shoot for because of the cost of speeding up and slowing down. Right, right. And that's probably what we're going to see also in the U S airline industry, right? You know, mm-hmm. you've got massive drawdown and then you have this you know this what looks to be this you know curve right back up uh, the other side now so it's it's going to be these dynamics are, are are just fascinating and i don't think we ha- are even really at the beginning or of, of figuring out what the long-term impact is here huh um now there's something you just mentioned a few minutes ago i mean this this leaves embraer this whole development leaves embraer sitting kind of pretty right i mean it's got it's basically got that part of the market to itself um yeah, yeah. but Embraer is not without its own issues recently with yeah, its uh, yeah. very high profile and kind of acrimonious breakup with Boeing. Yeah. Um, what is the, I mean, what is the Boeing sort of Boeing leaving that partnership um, mean for Embraer? I mean, is, does Embraer have the bandwidth to, and, and resources to continue to. Embraer was literally Boeing coming in and saying, okay, 80%. And it's this, it's this gobbling of, of a portion of, of, of the business, which I, which makes sense in the, in the, in the, in the near term in terms of thinking about new product development, engineering resources, so on and so forth. But it was also very uncomfortable to have a change that big in terms of two um, r- relations. I mean, look, I, I think there's sort of this classic um, uh, saying inside Boeing that, you know, Seattle and, and Chicago are, are, you know, sometimes very divergent in terms of what they want and how they cooperate you know, that's where Boeing is headquartered versus their commercial business. Seattle and Sao Paulo are even farther apart. 
right? So there, there, you know, there's the geographical challenge that was going to come along with this. Um, you know, look, I, I, I think a lot of the breakup in the near term was driven by by politics and finance. Interesting. Huh. Right? You know, you is it really tenable um, if you're if you're Dave Calhoun, uh, Boeing CEO, to be looking at potentially 17 the bond market instead? But can you take those funds and then turn around and give them 4.2 billion of those dollars to a Brazilian company for uh, their engineering resources? Right. And in in a political climate like this one, that's not exactly a tenable argument. Not to mention, there's no demand for an all new aircraft right now, as, as they see it, and they're going back to the drawing board. So, what you know, it, what what the Embraer discussion started as, how can we work with you on NMA? And then it became, okay, how can we buy you outright? And then because, okay, wait, the Brazilian government doesn't want that. How can we um, how can we take eighty percent of your commercial business? Hmm. And so, the, it, it evolved over time. Um, as far as what this means for Embraer, I mean, look, aerospace and aircraft development is a national business. You know, it's you have uh, the European bloc, you have the U.S. bloc, you have China, you have Russia, uh, and you have Brazil. And so it becomes a national game. And, and a national game can be played, again, we talked about patience earlier, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and the role of, of, of the A220 in the, in the C-Series. Um Nations have the patience to ride out these expensive developments. So what we now have in, in Brazil is Brazil has Embraer as in its entirety. And what you'll probably see is, you know, a level of, of partnership uh, on new programs with either India or China. I think um, I think uh, we've actually, you know, we saw um, um, the Embraer CEO, um, NATO last week actually talk about this mm. and the idea that we were more on a program basis and looking at a turboprop. And I, I, I think the subtext of that, and, and look, I, I think you can, you can ask me again in, in, in a year or two years, if, if this prediction comes right. But I think what he's signaling is that Indian, uh, an Indian partnership is going to be, is, is, is in the cards because China has their own turboprop, the MA 700. They want to sell it to their airlines. They want to, they want to have that capability. Um, uh, India has, has 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 from a from a political perspective, two democracies co- um, cooperating um, tends to be more politically palatable in terms of their relationships. Uh, you know, and, and I guess the question is, would would the U.S. or Europe um, want the Chinese inside Embraer, and what that means for the duopoly? So, but Embraer as as a technical as a as a technically capable company is. Second to none. They they can. There are not a lot of entities that can can go from a clean sheet of paper to a to a fully fledged, certified, serviceable design. Period. Mm-hmm. That people want to buy, right? That is not that is not something that's that is common in this business. So they have that ability. The question then becomes who they partner with, uh, who has the patience and the resources to help them advance themselves. And I think that they are in a you know effectively in a phenomenal position, given the U.S. airline industry to meet the demand of, uh, of the replacement for, for regional jets. That becomes essentially an annuity for them. Right. <laughs> and that's an amazing, an amazing thing given the, given the landscape we find ourselves in. Yeah. Well, these plates are moving fast. Um, very interesting. I, you know, I was, I was just reflecting when in, in our pre-call when we were talking earlier, John, I was just thinking like, God, 
I'm almost nostalgic for the days when the 737 Max <laughs> was the biggest news in the airline in the airline industry. And look at where we are now. Um, I did want to get to this uh, to a reader question, which is um, from Anonymous. Uh, do we do we have an update on an earth-shattering piece of reporting that Delta was trying to ditch its 717s yeah. in exchange for a 737 Max order? Yeah, you know it's so. Yes, yeah, the Air Current reported that mm -hmm. um, uh, about I guess about six weeks ago now, and um, they were talking actively. And I think uh, you know what what so what did what did Delta want? Delta wanted to get out of their lease uh, our agreement. Um, they wanted to reduce their their cash exposure. They wanted to simplify their fleet. Um, and they also wanted to ex increase their own exposure to the Boeing backlog because they were, they're heavily, they're predominant, actually their, their backlog is entirely Airbus aircraft. Now. Hmm. Um, so there was, there was all those dynamics going on and Boeing was not particularly enthusiastic about that. They wanted to actually, they wanted to have Delta as given everything that's gone on with the airplane and, and it's, um, and it's grounding. And uh, in light of all of that, um, I, I think there was also, uh, as they had these discussions, I think they, they both thought it was a good idea. And I think they both kind of realized it was a bad idea. Um, because number one, Boeing doesn't want to let Delta out of their lease obligations, um, even because no, no one's sure when those maxes would be delivered. And frankly, there's still a lot of discomfort with the max at, at, at really the highest levels. Um, of the company and concerns around customer acceptance to actually commit to um, commit to a uh, an airplane that would, at this point it, so um, when it's not recertified it's not flying again so I think it, it, it if it if it happens it, it will happen o over time um, they were talking and they were talking actively uh, I think they were trying to figure out where all the pieces were on the board but I think things have um, have gotten pretty chilly in that discussion. Um, based on a lot of, a lot of, you know, having it out and about, I think that probably will happen, you know, if it gets rekindled, it'll be in the next, next few, next few years. Great. Uh, now I, I, I want to ask you a question, John, you know, when I read the air current, I'm always, I'm always excited to read the aerospace news and just learn something new. Um, but I'm also, I'm especially excited when I read an airline piece <laughs> and, uh, and you had a great headline compass points to breeze. In your three points, up, John, um, the Air Current puts out a newsletter every week, three highlighting three topic or uh, three sort of big stories in the, the space, and um, and this one really caught my eye. Um, so, first of all, could you tell us what's going on with uh, Compass yeah. and Breeze? Uh, these, uh, yeah. This... So, so Compass uh, shut down um, earlier in the year uh, when American uh, pulled back their contract, and that was that came after Delta did theirs in 2019. These are, again, these are reasons that had very little to do with right. COVID and coronavirus, more the dynamics around regional airline consolidation. So, um, you know, the, the AOC, uh, the air operator certificate is up for grabs. Um, and certainly, you know, Translates Holdings, which, which owns the AOC mm -hmm. for Compass, um, is in the market to um, sell it. And um, certainly, uh, David Nealman has uh, has emerged as the as the, the most likely buyer of that, um, based on based on what what's are out and about and and um, our, our reporting on that. And um, you know, certainly that that gives um, Nealman and Breeze the ability to get up and running a lot faster. Um, the AOC, um, the, the Compass AOC already has Embraer aircraft on mm -hmm. it. 
Um, so there's a there's a sort of a, a natural compatibility there as far as you know how um, Azul kind of exits their first generation E195s, moves those a big chunk of those over to Breeze in the U.S. And Neilman, I talked to Neilman about this last year. And he was saying, effectively, yeah, we'd have two AOCs. So they've had one one AOC application. Mm-hmm. So this potentially gives them the ability to to move faster. Uh, and essentially, all these market share changes right now, um, you know, where, where we're running at, you know, fractional capacity, mm-hmm. uh, you know, certainly David Nealman still sees an opportunity for, for Breeze, even if they haven't kind of talked about it recently. And this is sort of a interesting uh, maneuver going on that could bear some interesting fruit. I think stay, stay tuned. On yeah, that that, that's, yeah. that's a really, I mean, it's just, it was kind of an eye, a shocker to me, right? It was when I read your story. And also uh, it just raised the question again that I've been wondering, you know, ever, is, is this a time to launch a new airline? Well, what is your take on that? Yeah. Well, you know, it was the, God, you can go with the, you know, the best of times. It was the worst right. of times cliche, right? You know, um, if you need airplanes, they're available that's really, true. really cheap. And they are plentiful. They are extremely plentiful. Um, oil is super cheap. Uh, in under normal circumstances, that would be a phenomenally ripe environment. And let, let's pause as well. I mean, this is something we've said in, in Airline Weekly, a craft are available, but also um, there's a, a lot of uh, airline men that will be coming loose oh. soon, right? And so there's there's a lot of talent to be tapped as well. Yep, it, 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 from the from the cockpit to the cabin, you know, under the wing mm-hmm. to your ship. I mean, there are going to be a lot of there going to be a lot of people available, and a lot of people are going to get creative. Uh, the question is, I mean, I, I wonder to what extent this is, and and I'm just I'm just spitballing here, but you know, I'm I want to look at the history of of you know 1977, 78, 79, 80. You know the you know post dereg deregulation in the US where you saw this explosion of of of, of carriers that came and went. You know, and, and <laughs> people, yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean the number of uh, of carriers that popped up and were quickly gone um was you know I I, I would go make a list of it. It's a lot a lot yeah. of a lot of airlines. So you know booming and busting. I, I, I do wonder, you know, the days of capacity discipline I think are gone. Hmm. You know that where there was this, you know, ten airline structure in the U.S., and it looked to be fairly stable. Yeah. You know, you you know there might have been room for a little more consolidation, uh, you know, one more big move of consolidation. But effectively, I think what we're what we're seeing here is checkers and chess being played, and and people moving trying to move very very quickly to secure market share. And um, what that will mean is there are going to be holes in, in networks for a while that people are going to try and exploit and seeing opportunities for businesses, you know, and I think that a lot of we've gone back to the wild yeah. west. You know, in one way of looking at it, like the way I was thinking, I think we were all thinking about Breeze and um, any new entrant is they'd have to come in underneath, right? Like, so we have this this layer of airlines to co- that... Uh, they covered the country and offered various levels of service and the only space for new entrants were in underserved markets or in in sort of secondary or tertiary markets right but i think you're right you're exactly right john the shift the thinking has to shift now that now it's sort of like instead of coming from underneath we're coming from the side as well right like so there will be holes in existing networks that provide vast opportunities for new entrants now having 
been a kid during the deregula- deregulation era um, and remembering just, you know, being interested in the industry like any little boy, just, just seeing the numbers of new airlines, numbers of airlines that came and went and the numbers of the, you know, the incumbents that disappeared, Braniff, Eastern, et cetera. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I'm not ready to say we're at the Wild West yet, but I think we're definitely like, this is this is definitely a, in fact, an inflection point for the industry. I'm curious to see where it uh, where it goes. So, you're bullish on Breeze, is that what you're, you're telling me? Um, I I would I've never uh, I don't think anyone has ever been right counting David Neal. No, absolutely not. And, and I think that's that's been fairly uh, consistent throughout his his professional history. So I, I I think his persistence and his ability to raise capital. And his ability to come up with a product that that, that people want to fly um, is really um, is you know legendary in this business. So you start with that, and you start with an environment as chaotic as this one. I mean, the one thing he doesn't have is an airline he needs to draw down yeah. to to save cash. You know, he can he is starting from scratch, and that allows him to 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 put his uh, put his pieces on the board where where he sees fit. And I think that. Um, I think we're going to see new entrants, and I don't think he's going to be the only one. Uh, I think, you know, again, if oil stays really cheap, uh, we're going to see this this progress, and there's going to be a lot of older airplanes yeah. out there, a lot. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, John, um, thank you so much for joining us this week. It was a pleasure to have you on. Um, to read uh, to to read more of John's great work and his team's great work, go to the Air Current. Uh, it's a must read for me, and um, uh, for <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> This is live. Sorry, uh, this will this this recording will be rebroadcast as a podcast later in the week for any, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, check us out at airlineweekly.com, and if you have any questions or feedback, drop me a line at mu at skiff.com. John, thanks once again. Thanks for having me, and and I just actually just shot into the uh, into the the chat. Uh, on the side of the screen, uh, a, lay, a URL to actually for a coupon for subscribing to the Air Current. So thank you all for for listening, and Madhu, thank you for having me. This was really really fun, and and um, you know I, I I love talking about the airline side. It's sort of it's the other half of my 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 lesser used brain, uh, and so this is this is terrific. Thank you really again hugely. My pleasure. It. We'll have you on again soon. Goodbye.